Good morning. Hey, grab your Bibles this morning. And uh, while you're doing that, um, I'm going to ask for some uh, participation. And uh, it's okay. Just uh, don't wait for me to call on you. Just say, say the fill in the blank from this statement. God is something, right? He's, he's, complete, that, complete that statement. First, I want you to do it from the perspective of somebody that maybe doesn't go to church. Maybe if you just walked up to somebody on the street and you said God is, and what do you think they would say? What kinds of answers would they give you? He's okay. He's a belief. He's love. Any others? He's good. Somebody might say that he's a savior. Okay. All right, well, that's, that's, a few, that's a few answers. Now, you have uh, probably a lot of ways that you might fill this in based on your like, background, your knowledge, uh, the fact that you have some, hopefully, uh, experience with Scripture and that would um, inform your view of how you could complete the statement. And there's not obviously one thing that you could put in there that, um, that would describe the fullness of who God is, but everyone is a theologian. See, the, the, the idea, that word scares people. They think, I'm not really a theologian, but... A theologian is just whatever you think about God. And you answer that, whether you do that poorly or accurately, is kind of uh, up to your experience and what you have um, as your background and, and what informs your view. Maybe different experiences that maybe have disappointed you about God. And so that would lead you to say something like, he's, he's not there or I, I don't, I'm agnostic. God is uh, an unknown, a question mark or something like that. Now, I'm going to invite our, our friend Tozer back this week to sort of um, give, a, give a, a statement about ideas about God. A.W. Tozer, who wrote Knowledge of the Holy, says this, Wrong ideas about God not only are the fountain from which polluted waters of idolatry flow. Okay, so he, it's Old English, okay? So you've got to get with the flow of the thought, okay? He says, wrong ideas about God are sitting out here. And from them... That's, that's the source. That's the fountain from which idolatry flows. Wrong ideas flow to uh, idolatry, okay? And then he says, but they are themselves idolatrous. So the idea itself being the source and leading to idolatry, the idea itself, the concept, your fill in the blank, can also be idolatry, okay? So the idolaters simply imagine things about God and then acts as if they were true. So if you say, I don't, I, God is not there, and then you make that a belief, then you would follow that and you would act as if that's true. Now, whether or not that's true is obviously um, not, not uh, conceded just because you state it, but the, the idea is that there's a stream of thought and from that stream of thought comes your behavior, right? Well, how we treat God is downstream or how we act towards God is downstream of our ideas about God, right? So they originate with something, some statement about God or, that we think is true, and then downstream from that is um, how we respond to or treat God. And then downstream from that even is idolatrous or false worship. And so what happens is we absorb things uh, either culturally or um, uh, philosophically just from different sources, and we allow those things to pollute our, our source fountain, our source stream. And um, by, by way of that, we come across lots of idolatrous worship. We kind of focused on that last week. I want to remind you about the, the two schools of thought. I, I gave you the foundation that Paul is addressing at this moment at, at the uh, cultural center, the, the high point of knowledge in, um, in Athens, 
at the Areopagus, okay? And so we're told that there are some Epicurean and some Stoic philosophers, and they uh, both inhabit this thing. And there's also the Athenians themselves and everybody that comes to Athens in general because they're always wanting something new, right? They, They need that next bit of information that maybe that will be the answer about what life is about or how life works. And so the Epicureans, remember, they have this kind of um, base uh, thrust of, of pleasure, okay? So life is about pleasure, so avoid, avoid pain and maximize pleasure. Now, it's not just hedonism in the sense that you just do all that you can at the cost of everything else. It is that the highest thing that you can do in life is to experience good or experience pleasure. If you were to sum it up in one concise statement, eat, drink, and be merry, Okay? That's, that's what life consists of. That's the most you can get out of it. And then their view on God or gods or deities is that they're distant. They're removed from the human experiences. Uh, if you think about how the, the Greek conception of the gods were, they live uh, way uh, off of Mount Olympus with Zeus, and they kind of have their own lives. And here we are down in the mud and the mire and just doing our own thing. And they really don't uh, meet or mix together, okay? And so that's kind of the, the deistic perception of the Epicureans. Now, the Stoic philosophers, we talk about this, uh, we, we use this term more in terms of people being very um, unaffected by the world, but life is about duty. So instead of being driven by, how do I get pleasure out of this, it is I should do um, what, what I can to participate in the way that the world actually works. And they say the world actually works by, it's governed by the logos, or the logic, or the knowledge. Or if you want to think about it this way, you could say that the, 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 the thing that really makes everything go in the world is scientific laws, okay? And once you get down to those base things, and then like human interactions and things like that. And so if you can abide by those and live by those, that's, that's virtuous, and you should do that. And if you, were gonna, um, if you were gonna boil their sentiment down to one statement, akuna matata, right? No worries, just, just don't let uh, emotions affect you, don't let bad things affect you, just get through life. Uh, you are a stone with uh, the stream kind of running over you, okay? And their, their vision of God would either be like to embody attributes of creation so that like, um, you know, you could think of like mother nature, okay? As an, an idea, a stoic idea of what God is like. Or that the universe or creation itself is, um, has the divine in it. Now, these two are, are kind of opposite sides of uh, the spectrum there. You see that some people are driven by one thing, some people are driven by another, but they kind of meet down at the at the bottom, and that chance and choice govern life. And there is no afterlife of consequence. And so if you can think about that in terms of what is it that um, generates your behavior or what it motivates your behavior, right? In general, if you're coming from a Christian worldview, you would say, because there is more than this experience here on earth, I, I, am, I am obligated. I ought to do something other than just whatever I want, right? And so um, if you don't have that view about life, then you're going to look for something else to, to govern or to motivate your behaviors. And so that's exactly what happens. Now, this kind of philosophy is not, it's not far removed from us. It just takes like different forms today and we hear it in different ways. But these kinds of ideas are the pollution to our stream. And they are in themselves idolatrous and then they lead to idolatry because they, they um, confuse our minds about what is true about God. And then when we live by those untruths, then we, we make God into something that he is not. When we think of God less than what he is, lower than what he actually is, uh, we, we do this for a lot of reasons. One is maybe we want to make God relatable. Like we, we make God like us so that we feel like he's somebody we can relate to. And so in, in doing that, what we do is we reduce God, not to be God who God says God is and what Bible says God is, but to who we want God to be. 
And maybe we think that he has weaknesses or flaws or we assign to him attributes that um, allow us to say that he's not so far removed from, from me and, and that we, we can kind of relate on like a, a common ground or something or we want him to be loving or our definition of good or our limitation on powerful and these things are the pollution to our streams. Now, what does this look like in the philosophies of today? Okay, well, let me give you a few examples of how this comes out. So the idea that God is really less than what the Bible says he is, and that pollutes my ideas about God is X, Y, and Z, and leads to my behaviors towards God based on what I think. And so you'll hear things like this today. Do what makes you happy, right? If, if your highest good is pleasure, then just do whatever it is that makes you, makes you happy. Live in the moment. YOLO for the kids, right? You only live once. That's for you guys that aren't in the know, okay? You only live once, so live in the moment. How about this? Follow your heart. Live your own truth, okay? Instead of whatever uh, the, the Bible says is true, whatever God says is true, you just, you just do whatever you think is true, and that's good enough. That is truth. Listen to the experts or keep an open mind. Don't, don't be so closed-minded that you think you know everything. What goes around comes around. That's just karma repackaged. Life is what you make it. Okay? Do more. Achieve more. Have more. That is, that is what it is. That's all that you can get in life. So go ahead and do that. Or maybe love yourself first. Or just be who you are on the inside. These are starting to sound like Disney Channel things. So you can do anything you put your mind to. Right? There is no purpose. Just chance and luck. Are these sounding like familiar sentiments that you experience in culture? Yes, because that kind of pollution allows us to dismiss the reality of a God who is. And a God who is separate from us, who is higher than us, that is not like us, means that he can dictate to us how we should live. And if we can, we can kind of remove that, dismiss that, or lower that, then we can um, dictate back to God what we think we ought to do. And so that's exactly where we're at this morning. But our goal this morning is not to talk about all the ways that we are polluted, but to unpollute our thoughts about God. So we think about God, who he actually is, and what he's actually like, so that we do respond to him, not in idolatrous, false worship, but in right, honoring worship. So would you pray with me this morning? As we get to the text, we'll be in Acts 17. I'll go from verse 24 through 25, uh, 29 this morning. You guys almost got scared that I was only doing one verse. <laughs> Father God, you're good. We come this morning as humble people that um, do not know everything. We want to see truth and know truth, and you say that your word is truth. So, Father, this morning, would you open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your word, that we can know you and know you through your truth, that we would see you as you really are, so that we would be led to worship in a way that honors you. Father, just pray that you would honor this request. Be with those that um, aren't able to gather with us this morning. God, would you speak um, wherever they are and whenever they watch this message. We love you. Ask this in Jesus' name. Everyone set? Okay. Well, I'm going to go through just, uh, I'll read the whole thing, and then we'll go verse by verse as we do. And I, this is really just going to be a series of rebuttals against the kind of ideas that pollute the stream, right? It's going to be, what, what Paul is saying to the philosophers in his opportunity to present this new teaching, right? They say, you bring in a new teaching to our ears. We want to hear more about it. So that's what Paul's doing. And so what he's doing is he's essentially just crushing their worldview. 
He's saying, the way that you think that things work and your conception of what God is like, your unknown God or whatever it is that you're trying to do to make your life work, he's just going to go down the list and, and blow those ideas up. So here we are, chapter 17, and I'll start in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that uh, the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and the imaginations of man. Which echoes uh, essentially what Tozer said. It's you imagine something about God and then you live like that thing is true. And, and Paul's coming against that idea that you don't get to say who God is or what he's like. And he's given a very concise definition now of who God is in his, in his being, okay? And he starts with the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He makes a statement about God's, God's um, uh, attributes, and then he claims something for God in that attribute. A creator God, listen carefully, is foundational to every other attribute of God. Now, every attribute of God must work in unison. There's not one thing that's greater than another. They're never in, in attention. They all function always, all the time, at maximum capacity. There's never a problem between any of the attributes of God. But all attributes of God must function from within this idea that God is creator. Because all of the truths about creation, about the world, about life, have to flow from a creator God. God is, the creator is a statement about God's otherness or his uniqueness to creation. There is God in a category by himself and everything else. I'll say that again. There is God in a category all by himself and everything else. There is creator and creation. And the only thing in the category of creator is God. So this is what, what, what Paul is claiming for God. God the creator makes a statement about his otherness. God is not, we, we say God is holy. And we mean it something like, well, God is better than me. Yes, he's better than you, but that's not really, really the idea of what holiness conveys. Holiness means something like distinct or separate, right? And when we see that in heaven, we say that there's angels around the throne, and they're declaring what? Holy, holy, holy. When you say something three times, it's like the superlative of the superlative. He is the holiest of the holier holy. And they say that three times, so it's a superlative of the superlative of the superlative, and I'm spraying, I'm sorry. So, Think about this. It is as holy as you can be. In fact, God is the only one in this category, so they had to create a, a theological term that defines um, God. And so this is called the aseity of God. And essentially it's this. Aseity is the mode of being, which is, means it's un, he is underived, or he's independent from everything else. His existence is self-originated. Okay? That's why he is different than all the rest of creation. Let me say that again. Because God created, everything else is contingent on the creator. Aseity means that God exists without ever having created, and that he is not dependent on anything. He is independent of everything. So that means that when we think about God and we say he's holy, we're saying he's different than I am. 
He's, 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 he's unapproachable in that sense. When um, Isaiah says uh, of God, he's speaking for God, he says, he speaks, my, my ways are not your ways, neither are my, uh, my, sorry. My ways are not your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. And he says, my ways are so much higher than yours. They're, they're like, as the earth is from the heavens, from the highest heavens. That is, you're way down here and, and whatever your grandest thoughts about who God is or what he's like are still way down in the ozone layer, right? God is way up in the ends of the universe from our conception of what he's actually like. That is a deficit there that we can't quite wrap our minds around. The idea that God is more or less like me, but to a greater extent, is foolish. When we say God is more or less like a human being, but he's just better than me. Like, I have some flaws. We're the same, but he's better than me. That's, that is to reduce God to silliness. Okay? The idea that God is independent and holy other than us is uh, so much extra than that. So he asserts that God made everything. God is the uncreated creator. He is the first cause. He is the unmoved mover. And if you take any other worldview that does not have a who, a God at the beginning, there, it's irreducible to, 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 uh, to silliness. When you take a worldview and push rewind and you say, how did creation come to be? So you remove the creator from this. And you say, well, then how did creation come to be? You ask how, you ask what, and you ask why. And every worldview that does not start with a who is forced with this dilemma. Because there has to be an explanation for everything that we see. And it doesn't matter what you go to, they always seem to offer a when. A when instead of a who. Because they don't know why the what happened and where the, where the what was. And so they have to keep rewinding. So I have this, just came out recently, um, this is an article, and it says this. New research puts the age of the universe at 26.7 billion years. Now, once you start getting to the billions, it doesn't matter. You're just like, yeah, for, add another few billions on. The funny thing about this is it's double what they originally thought. The reason is because it, they keep running into the problems of it doesn't matter how far you back it up. It always creates a new issue where you can't have something start from nothing. You can't have all of the what of creation come from nothing. And so they say, well, we'll just back it up further. And then maybe it starts. But you have to have an unmoved mover, a first cause for something to act on. And that's why God creator is asserted to have a different authority than everything else. There's only two proposed solutions, God creator and everything else. And everything else is always going to fall short. We tend to think that we're like the underdog in this fight, that we have to meet like science that, that goes to show you that for whatever science is the explanation about how creation came to be, it just keeps moving. The target keeps moving because they can never have a first cause. There is never an origination point that they can sink their teeth in and say, this is how it happened or why it happened. He says, God made the world and everything in it. That is not just the stuff of creation, but also our being, our, ourselves. And that's the other problem of like evolution. Things don't go from chaos to order. They don't get from worse to better. They always go from better to worse. They always, but the law of entropy is that things are unwinding. And so if you back up 13.7 billion years, there's just too much there for the, the, the universe to function. This is not meant to be an apologetic, but I want to caution you from giving away the authority and saying, I need to meet science on the level of science. And you're saying, 
that what God's word says is not true, I'm going to meet you on the level of what you think is the authority and your seeding ground that you don't need to seed. They need to defend the premise that what God says is true is not true. Because obviously it's, it, it seems to be a, a moving target and it's difficult to do. It's tempting to feel like you're the underdog and you're not. You have the truth on your side. Colossians 1, 16 through 23 says, For in him all things were created. That's speaking now of Christ. All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He asserts one thing about God being creator. Yes, God's in a different category than us. There's God and then there's creation. And he stands above all those things. And because of that, he is Lord over heaven and earth. He is Lord over creation. He asserts kingship rights over everything. Being creator equals being Lord. Psalm 24, 1 says, The Lord, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. The world and all who dwell therein. He has founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. Everything that is created, which is everything except for God, right? He's the uncreated one. Everything except for God must respond to and also belongs to God. Without, without God, there is nothing that we see or don't see that is made that we can see or not see. That's what this verse asserts. What, whatever it is that we have, have beheld, it was made for God, by God, through God, through Jesus. Um, when we see that he's uh, Lord over heaven and earth, this goes, it defies directly the idea that, um, you know, God is, can rule his realm out there in the spiritual heavens, but here am I down on earth. And I'll rule things here. Or that he has given dominion over to man and just left us to ourselves. But he has dominion on heaven and earth. And that's the same thing that Jesus affirms as he goes and he's ascended to heaven. He says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. His lordship is total. He says, though this God does not live in temples made by, by man. Because God cannot be confined. Paul means to rebuke their small ideas about a God that can be carved out of something and set in its place and come to worship at your pleasure. Everything that built by man is a lesser thing than what God could possibly inhabit. God cannot take shelter in, in the whole entire earth where he chooses to. While God's presence is, listen, an inescapable reality in the, in the meaning of that is that he's omnipresent. There's nowhere that you can go that God is not there. Okay? When, when, when David says it, he says, if I go to the high, highest heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths of the sea, you're there. There's nowhere I can go outside of your presence. But in the same way, God is not always fully present in totality, right? It's not like we have a little pinky toe of God here in the temple. But he is fully present, but he's not fully present. Our, our uh, conception of what it is for God to be here in, in every place is not the same as the idea that he can be contained in a temple. If you have a thimble full of water, maybe this is a good way to think about it. If I take a thimble out to the ocean and I fill that thimble full of ocean, that thimble is absolutely full of ocean, is it not? Totally to the brim, spilling over. I can fill it up as much as I want. I do not have the totality of the ocean in my thimble, but all I have in my thimble is ocean, right? This is the presence of God, okay? It's inexhaustible. It can totally fill everything, but you do not have all of God's presence everywhere or in some certain place at any certain time. It's impossible. You cannot have infinite presence confined to a finite place. So he says, God is not confined to our small areas. Why? Because God is spirit. 
He doesn't have a spirit. He is spirit. So your conception of building something to house him is foolish. Solomon acknowledges this when he builds the grand temple and he's going to dedicate it. He said, is it, I mean, could God possibly come who dwells in the highest heavens and live here on earth? Would he really make his presence here? And God agrees to do that graciously. He condescends and gives his, his manifest presence in the temple. But the idea is the same. We, we can't house God. He's not confined to our spaces or our ideas and our limitations on him. And he goes on to say, he is not served by human hands as though he, need, he needs anything. Because God does not need and nor is he served. Now this sounds funny to us because we think of worship and service and all those things. So what is it that, that Paul's really driving after? God does not need. Listen to Psalm 50. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. We just said, because God is creator and Lord over everything, he owns it all. He says, I would not accept anything from you because they're all mine anyway. Verse 11, I know all the birds of the hills and all um, that moves in the field is mine. He asserted both. All of those things are mine. 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and all its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? He's saying, I don't need sustenance from these things. And even if I did, they're mine anyway. So you can't bring them to me as though I needed them. You can't offer them to me as your service to me because I'm not in any kind of deficit or need of those things. And he says, God is not served in this way, which is a direct contradiction to every idol. If you think about how it is that you must plead with some God, some other lesser deity, some idol to serve you, to give you what you need, you come and you bring your offering, your sacrifice. And maybe it's a plate of food, or maybe it is some other, some, some money, something like that. If you've um, ever traveled abroad or you've been to a place where there's a pagan temple, you'll see all kinds of offerings that have been left at these different statues and idols. And guess what? The food just goes rancid after a while and the flowers die and all these things because those gods don't really need those things and they're not there and they can't consume them anyway. And that's the utter foolishness of serving something as though it needed to be served or could be served. So here's a, a change we need to think about when we think about what it is to, to serve God or worship God. Our worship is an expression of our need of God, not the other way around. Okay? You come and worship God because you need him, not because he needs you to bring him something. And your, even your worship is not filling God up. It's not giving him something he doesn't already have. You're not, you're not adding worthiness to him. It doesn't matter how big the gift is or how small it is. Or even if you don't acknowledge him at all, you can't take worthiness away from God. So he is worthy regardless. So he's not served in any way by what it is that we do. He's unaffected, if you want to think about it that way, because he's totally sufficient. And if he wanted anything, it's his anyway. So he could have it. So all that you come and you offer is your need. And in giving your need to God is what true worship is. You don't create worthiness in God by serving him, nor do you take it away from him by not. He says, why? Because God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What, what can you bring me that's not mine already? You can't. You can't serve me with anything. There's no grand gesture. There's no length that's, that's, that's so much that God's like, oh, I cannot believe he would do that for me, right? He's, he's not wringing his hands wondering if you're going to be on his team because without you, he's nothing. These are the ways that we foolishly think about a God. But those are all lesser gods. Those are, those are what we think about what we would be like that's human characteristics ascribed to God. God is the source of all. And he's the source of everything that you could possibly serve him with. 
Anything that you could provide to God is first provided to you. That's what he says. What could you give me that I did not first give you? Well, he's the source of life. That's your soul. Breath, that's the thing that's keeping you alive. And everything, everything else that keeps you alive, okay? He's, he's, he's got all that. There's nothing that you can bring to him that he's not first provided to you. When God rescues Israel out of um, Egypt and before they go into the promised land, several times God reminds the people, listen, I want you to, to remember all that I've done. He puts the feasts in there. He puts the law in there. He gives the second giving of the law. He puts the sacrificial system in there. And he says the actual reason for that is to remind you that I, I rescued you. You didn't do these things, but here's what's going to happen. You're going to get into the land and you're going to look at yourself and you're going to say, look at all my hand has got. Look what I've accomplished. See how far we've come, right? Look at all that we've done. This, isn't, this is because we, we take credit for what God has actually done. Deuteronomy um, reminds them that when you get into the land, do not say to yourself, um, the power and strength of my hand have made this wealth for me. God is the source of all. He is the source of all. So everything that you give is coming from his source. It originates in him. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. This is interesting. We're going to backtrack to this next week. But he's essentially saying this. All, all mankind shares a source. We have a, common, we have a common ancestor. All men are dust, created originally from dust. And from Adam we all descend and we, we look at that and we say, we're just, so all of these categories that we come up with, why we're different or we're better than somebody else or somebody's less than are silly because God created us all from the same stuff. We all exist because of the same sustenance that he gives us. All nations from one blood. And he says, so far as to, he's established the, the, the time and the place and the boundaries of where you live. Now this is important because it says God is in control. This is where things get off track for us. I'll just say we get off the rails. We think that if I don't like the idea of God's control about something, I'll just deny it. But it doesn't make it less true. Okay? Just like, you know, it was popular um, when, when uh, Trump got elected. They would say, like, he's not my president. And I'm like, your acknowledgement of his presidency is, is silly. He's president regardless whether you acknowledge it or not, Right? So it's the same, same application here. God is in control. And Paul's asserting this is what God has done. He's not asking if they agree with it, if it feels like that's true, right? He says this is what God has done. He's given time, places, and boundaries. And this means that he's had a purpose in doing those things. He's going to connect it to a purpose. And I want you to see that this rebukes the idea that life is about chance or fate. If, if, um, if everything is about free choice and we're just kind of like banging off of um, everybody and, and there's no real like direction to anything and it's all just kind of chaos and disorder, then life truly is only chance, right? And if you come across something, it's a, a happy coincidence. And this is the way that everybody that doesn't have a conception of God thinks about life. And that, that's a pointless kind of existence. God has appointed the times and boundaries which says that he, he cares about you. There's purpose in where you are, why he's put you in the place that you are. We, we, we tend to think that I'm just, you know, little old me in the lonely world. And I, I don't know that there's any real reason to my existence. But this says that God has purposed all 
of the people that he creates. And he puts them exactly where they need to be in the time when they need to exist, which is great. I'm so glad I live right now. I don't want to live in the dark ages. Or, you know what I mean? Like, I'm so thankful. But the purpose of his doing this was so that for those that do not have um, direct access to the promises. If you're not the nation of Israel, he said he's allotted the places and the boundaries of their habitations. Why? So that they would seek him. That is, that is the ought of every, every human being's existence. What is it that you should do if you don't have anything? Well, you should, you should look at creation and conclude something from this creation. I ought to seek something bigger than me. And this is the product of his purposing all, all people. Now, two weeks ago, um, Christy, uh, yes, this is good. She, she had an objection because I said the only source of, of truth is God's word. And she's like, well, what about when it says in Romans 1, where it says, you know, God, is, God can be known in creation. I think that's an important objection, and I, I want to address that because it says here that they should seek him and perhaps feel their way. And like, they, they could feel their way towards him and find him, yet he's actually not far from us. So I want you to... Go with me to Romans 1, where Paul says, what can, what, what can we know about God, and what is the result of that? So in Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking about every, every person's um, accountability to God. And he says this, what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Okay, So he, he's, he's qualifying something. What, what can be known about God is plain. And what, what kind of things are made plain to everyone? Well, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Let me unpack what Paul's saying here. He says, because God is creator and he made creation, when you look at creation, you have to say, something made this, someone made this. It didn't just come from nothing. And he says, that kind of... Um, thought process is going to lead you somewhere that you should acknowledge that there is a creator. And that kind of acknowledgement says, well, he's got to be powerful if he made this. And that is evidenced in his created works. So he's saying that's made plain to us. Everybody has access to creation. But it doesn't say they can know God. It says what they can know about God is that his divine attributes, namely his, um, divi his divine nature and his power in created things. For although they knew God, so the qualification of knowing God is knowing him as the creator, the powerful one that made all of these things. They didn't honor him as God. Well, that's true today too. I don't have, a, I don't have an explanation for how there was a creator or how we came to be or why anything is the way that it is. So I'm not going to honor God as creator. And so you turn that inward and you give thanks to yourself or to some law of the universe or some other thing, right? You turn what is rightfully God's as creator and you turn it to something else and they become futile in their thinking. And so God says, that's fine. I've made, I've made myself pretty clear, but I'm not going to continue to reveal myself in a way that you're going to resist. Why? Because that would only heap further condemnation on you and you're already accountable. So we'll get into more of that next week. So what can be known about God has been revealed in creation. And this is why it's so important that creation is rock solid for you, that you really believe that God is creator just as he said he was in Genesis 1. This is like the fundamental point of attack, always. Because if you give that up, then everything else is up for grabs too. What can be known about God is that he, he can be perceived in his creation. 
He can be known. He has made himself evident in different ways. There's general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is, is creation and um, evidenced in all the magnitude of, of what we behold and seeing that we're these unique creatures, that we have a will and, a, and uh, complexity to ourselves. And then there's special revelation where, where God says, this is who I am. And he's done that in his word. And he's done it through the prophets. And he's done it through his son. That's special revelation. So God is knowable, and he can be known, and he is perceivable. The difficulty in finding God is not because he is some great distance from us, which also flies in the face of the, the idea that the deism, which is, yeah, God created things, he wound up the clock, and now it's unwinding, but he's totally removed from everything, right? He's not that far, he's not far away from you. He says he's, he's actually right near to us, because, why? Because in him we live and move and have our being, the deist conception is that God is removed. He won't intervene. And closeness has to do with like his, his proximity to us. And what Paul is saying is that you can perceive God not just in creation and, and looking at the stars and all those kinds of things, but if you just think about who you are as a human being, you can perceive something about God. This clashes with the Epicureans and the Stoics that either assigned God's rightful place as creator as, as, um, as Lord, as sovereign to either parts of creation, like, you know, like where creation actually is God, or laws of creation, like the Stoics, or uh, just deists, like the Epicureans. He says in verse 28, in him we live and move and we have our being. That is, the, the very nature of what we are is from God, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul's going to now quote a couple of, of uh, poets who lived a couple hundred years actually before um, this moment when he's going to quote them, but he's, he's going to use their own philosophers, their own ideas about what is true in the world to, to show to the evidence that what, what really can't be known about God, you already knew. It's already been acknowledged, but you're not living in accordance with those truths. Your, your own poets have said these things, like we are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver, an image formed from the art and the imagination of man. He says, we are, we are God's offspring. But he, he's, um, he's not saying that we're like God's children in the sense that we become God's. He's, he's quoting the reality of creation that from the dust of the ground, man was formed and that God blew the breath of life into Adam's lungs and he gave him his spirit. And we're, we're, we're told that we are created in the image of God. And it's been said we like that idea so much, we return the favor to God, right? We said, we, we like this, and now we're going to form you back in our own image. We bear the mark of God when we think about the idea that we are created by him, and we bear his image in the sense that we are meant to reflect something of his being, something of his character. So if an idol, though, is an expression of polluted thoughts about God. We make God less than what he is. You can see that he's saying, God's not like us in the sense that you're thinking he is, that you can create something, you can fashion something out of your hand and call it God. If we're his offspring, then just like any kid, you have to bear something of the nature of the thing that you came from. And you didn't come from metal and you didn't come from wood. You're, you're a totally different kind of creature. So you see that that is a conflict. So the divine, the divine being can't be like these things. Something that man could conceive of because we must be less than God as his offspring. So Colossians 2.8, Paul is 
cautioning the Colossians, the Colossian, the church in Colossae. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive, not by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world. That, that idea really has to do with the fact that you look at the world as, as deified. This is speaking directly to that kind of stoic thought process and not according to Christ. He says there's a way of thinking that accords with Christ and what he's really like, but there's another way of thinking that if you think through philosophically or scientifically or psychologically or some other way, that you're going to become captive to those ideas and you can't allow Christ to be what he actually is which is what God says he is and not who you make him out to be. This is the foundation for grasping the good news of the gospel. That God is fundamentally separate from us and the problem of sin actually is a problem. If God is like us and he's got flaws and and problems and we're just kind of like buddies and chums, then the problem of sin isn't really the separation between us and God because we're all kind of the same. But if God is like totally other than us, and we're separated from him, and we don't have any of the attributes that we've already listed, which is creator God, and sustainer God, and God in control God, empower God, and the one who has determination and purpose in what he does, who gives and upholds all of your life and breath and everything, you don't have any of that in yourself, and you're separated, separated from the source of those things, sin becomes a problem. So the foundation of the gospel being good news comes from these truths. That God is the source. He's other than us. And that he's made him to seek him. Made us to seek him. The person that believes there are no gods, or there are lesser gods, or remove gods, must turn the evidence for God into something else. And so this is the, the main source of our pollution. And so what it comes down to is, really, we need to have a very accurate Expression of what God really is. We think that we are self-sufficient. That we, we get along by our own, our own goodness, our own trying. Uh, we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But Paul said, no, you're, you're not. You're, you're contingent. You're dependent. God upholds even your next breath in his hand. And you can't bring anything to God as though he, he needed anything. Your service doesn't add anything to God. You're not going to, to, to serve somebody that's greater than you in a way that, that means anything. We also can't think that I'm mostly there. I just need a little, a little boost. I'm pretty much like God. We're, we're, we're pretty good. I'm just like right here, you know? And if I could just get a footstool, we'd be okay, right? That's a, that's a, that's a wrong thought. And so we are tempted then to redefine God or to reinterpret him or to constrain him or to contort or confine him. We put him into places that we think that he can be accessed when we want him at our convenience. We limit his power or his reach. We want a God who is in control, but a God that we control who's in control. That is, that's, the, that's the religious problem of, of approaching God. Religion says, I serve God so that I get what I want. I, I, can, I can exert control over the thing I don't actually have control over. That's why anyone serves any idol. It's going, it represents the power to change something that I don't necessarily have the power over. And by serving this thing, I can put it in my debt. I can put God in my debt that he must give me something. So I just want to go back to what it says about God is not in need of anything and neither is he served by us. God's worth 
is expressed, not in what you give him, but what he gives you. Because you cannot give God anything that he doesn't already have. The only genuine thing that we can give God is need. And it pleases God to be our provider. He is glorified in being what he actually is, which is source, which is God. The Lord takes pleasure in those who are satisfied in his love. God is creator, source, supply. He's life itself. He's the gracious and abundant Lord. He is the spirit that fills the heavens and the earth and every aspect of creation. He's bigger than the expanses of space. He's made every molecule and each atom that makes up the smallest things in the uh, created world. He placed each of us in our time and our place for a very specific person. He cares for us intimately and personally. He knows us. In the, in the womb, he knits you together. He has purpose for our lives. He has foreknown us before the oceans and the mountains were set into place. It is mind that spoke the substance of everything that is observable and not observable. There is no law or knowledge that can be known that did not first originate in him. We are to seek him with our living he is the answer to every question, the satisfaction to all of our needs. He is the meaning and purpose of our existence. He is the truth and knowledge and anything that can be discovered that is worth knowing. So we ought to seek him as God. So we should find our greatest pleasure in God being our source. That is our surface to him. The main thing that this communicates is our insufficiency, our need. So God is He's a lot of things. He's everything. But it's rooted in his actual character and, and what he's asserted, what he is, and not who we make him out to be. I hope that this morning is both encouraging and, and maybe resetting. I think it's hard to sometimes see the pollution as it's like getting into the stream. It says the, the idea that the idolatry is not just the dirty stream, but the, the origination point, the false idea about God that pollutes the stream says that you have to go even before that thing to understand what the problems are in your approach to God. And so everything that doesn't fundamentally start with God is the answer. God is the source. God is in control. God is whatever it is. It must start from that origination point. Otherwise, it is less than what God actually is. Father, I pray this morning that as we...